an 1820, kangaroo grass would have been totally dominant. So all you would have seen was orange, which is what its colour is at this time of year in sea. We're going to have to walk because I don't want to risk your vehicle with rocks. On the Monero Plain in southern New South Wales, a farmer is showing us kangaroo grass that has reappeared on his property. And I'll just show you, it's all coming back in big patches here now. When you drove down the road in the turn-off, you would have seen a lot of orange on the hillside. See that? But you'll see here how green it is. I can show you patches. Magic stuff. The Monero is a vast treeless expanse at the cusp of the snowy mountains. Our view extends along the plain to the west. Sandy-coloured rolling hills dip away into bright blue lakes and dams. Paddocks are dominated by lush grasses which come up past your knees. It's a lovely spot you got Our host, Charles Massey, has been farming here for 40 years. He's finally arrived in the 1920s. His farm, Severn Park, is looking healthy, but it wasn't always this way. Well, it was a family farm, so uh, when I was at uni, when I was 22, my father had a major heart attack, so I sort of came back earlier than I was planning on. Finished undergraduate degree part-time, which interestingly was in zoology and the first course in Australia on holistic thinking, human ecology, which explains why I probably shifted path later. But it wasn't until I'd been through some big droughts and realised that traditional farming was just destroying a landscape and, and that's what gave me the, uh, if you like, the shock to the system to, to change. Charles is a sheep farmer who spent the past 20 years transforming his farm with regenerative agriculture techniques. He says about a quarter of the farm is now covered in native vegetation and that the species list is growing with 140-odd birds living there now. It takes a while to get the healing going. But I can give you, well, uh, we're getting the original kangaroo grass, a thermometer, because from Queensland border to right down through all this country, Victoria to South Australian border, at this time of year, before Europeans arrived, the whole landscape would have been orange with this grass. It's a really valuable grass, deep-rooted and overgrazing, poor management, ploughing and everything has destroyed all that. So we're now starting to see that coming back with our management. I'm Sophia Tarek, and for this episode of Voice of Real Australia, we're talking about how farming could be used to slow down climate change. The idea is that you can suck carbon from the atmosphere and store it in plants and the soil, and farmers are being paid to change the way they farm to promote carbon storage. Some are regrowing native forests on their farms, which were cleared generations ago. Others are improving their ground cover to make sure carbon stays locked away. But while there are opportunities, there are also concerns, and critics say the amount carbon farmers can store is limited and difficult to measure. On Charles's farm, we sit on his veranda, overlooking his vibrant garden. As insects buzz around and a robin calls from a tree, he outlines his case for regenerative agriculture. So I now define regenerative agriculture as um, uh, farming in a way that allows those landscapes and their systems to self-organise back to health. So, in other words, nature has this inherent wisdom, co-evolved over millions of years. And uh, what we've done with industrial agriculture is simplify the hell out of it and destroy it, like the soil biology and things like that. So both the modern grazing, the regenerative grazing and the regenerative cropping is 
doing things that allows that ancient co-evolved functioning to re-emerge, reactivate and uh, regenerate the landscape. So unlike a lot of Australia, you don't plough and poison the country and turn it bare, which kills all the, the valuable soil biology. You, you try and keep the ground covered for 100% of the year, only use natural ingredients and fertilisers. That regenerative or holistic grazing approach so it does that and stimulates it and the modern cropping they don't use modern chemicals and fertilizers and um, still getting equivalent yields because they're using biology. Charles says regenerative agriculture requires a fundamental shift in the way you think about farming. He says it's not an easy change to make. He used to think his livestock was his most valuable asset. Now it's his soil. And one of the shocks to my system in the early days we built up an enormous debt in my, like in the 80, the big 80s, 79, 83 drought. Because I thought my most valuable asset was my animals, sheep and cattle. And so we had to feed them to preserve that genetics. In, in reality, the most valuable asset is your landscape and mother nature. And um, so now, um, when we run into a big drought, which we've just had, and finished a few years ago, uh, we just kept selling These are unique, you know, these are little button wrinkleworts, um, amazing plant, almost extinct. Um, Around the world, grasslands act as carbon sinks. Their deep roots keep the soil intact and lock away huge amounts of carbon, but they've been severely degraded. In this region, pastures have been transformed and introduced grasses for livestock have largely replaced native species. My name is Minku. Minku means grass tree. I take that from my three times great-grandmother, otherwise known as Shane Mortimer. I'm a Ngambri elder here in Canberra. Canberra is named after our family, the Ngambri people, and we've been here forever. I'm standing in the foothills of Mount Ainsley in Canberra with Uncle Shane Mortimer, a lodial title holder of the ACT and General Coordinator for Australia at the World Council for Nature. We're standing on a small block of land on the corner of two residential streets. It's covered in native grasses and clumps of ancient boulders. Where we are now is the last remnant of the original uh, grasslands of Canberra, Ngambri grasslands. It's this whole, uh, the whole of Canberra was not treed. Every tree you see in Canberra is introduced with the exception of the trees on the top of the hills. And even then, they were sparsely treed because they were very carefully managed by our people, They're using fire as a, as a farming tool. But you know, every tree you see is introduced into this, this landscape in Canberra. So Canberra is not the bush sort of environment that they make it out to be, never was. It was a very plentiful grassland with a river meandering through the middle of it and a, a really beautiful location full of great food and, and sustenance for our people and, and was like that until just 230 years ago. Shane says there is less than 1% of untouched native grasslands left in Australia and that we have completely ignored the resources of this land and the knowledge of First Peoples, instead opting to grow imported monocultures like wheat and cotton and non-native pastures for sheep and cattle. In terms of the ability and, and knowing how to restructure a grassland, yes, we can provide lots of advice on that. 
but it's not to us to go in and do it. And that's that's a joint arrangement. Uh, and that's what it needs to be, is a joint arrangement. Listen to what was there. Listen and learn. And they know that things like the monocultures of wheat and rice and cotton don't work in this landscape. Shane says there's an opportunity to capture atmospheric carbon dioxide by bringing back the perennial grasslands that used to cover his country. A 5% increase on the organic matter, soil organic matter, of the destroyed native grasses of Australia by regenerating with native perennial grasses because our native perennial grasses put water into the soil surface and reverse salinity by forcing the salt table down. But it also puts carbon into the soil. And it, it does it within a year. Within a single season, our grasses are carbon positive. A 5% increase on the soil organic matter of the indigenous grass, or I shouldn't say indigenous, it's the wrong term, but of the, the provenant perennial grasses will take more carbon out of the atmosphere than the entire planet has put up there since the Industrial Revolution. So this land alone has the ability to solve the atmospheric CO2 issue and the rest of the world can pay for it. The big polluters can pay for it. They can invest in carbon credits. The kangaroo grass Charles showed us is one of these perennial grasses. Charles says regenerative agriculture practices, the kind he's committed his life to, can have a big impact on climate. And he says we don't have much time left. Well, we've got less than 25 years. These recent droughts, bushfires, massive wet seasons like this, not just for city people, but it, it, it makes management very hard as well, even though you're getting lots of growth and ruin crops at point of harvest and all those sorts of things. So we're in really dangerous times at the minute. But some of the best solutions, other than stopping the industrial world from pumping up fossil fuels all the time, is regenerative agriculture because it pulls carbon dioxide down and puts it in the soil. What Shane and Charles are talking about is called carbon sequestration, a natural process where plants capture carbon in the atmosphere and store it in the ground. Shane again. But if we can get back to basics, and go back to grassroots and start to look after the place and reinvest in, in our, our uh, perennial grasslands that have provenance to an area, then we're off to a flying start and ask the world to buy carbon credits in Australia to fund that. Modern farming practices imported from Europe two centuries ago strip a lot of carbon from the soil and the biodiversity of the soil and farmland suffers as a result. But in Australia, farmers can essentially get paid for the amount of carbon they suck out of the atmosphere and store in their soil through the government's Emissions Reduction Fund and the Carbon Farming Initiative. They earn carbon credits, which can be bought by polluters to offset carbon emissions. Charles has been a pioneer of regenerative agriculture but isn't running any specific carbon credit projects on his farm, although he does receive a subsidy for maintaining biodiversity. Hello. We meet up with a farmer who has been brought into carbon farming through the carbon credits scheme. 
Well, my name is Rodney Royds and I'm a full-time farmer, mostly cattle and sheep, um, living in the Braywood district, fifth generation farmer, so I, I suppose I'm a career farmer, don't have any other forms of income. And uh, yeah, I just uh, inherited, a, a, well, I'm running a family, part of the family farm that uh, my father inherited back in the 1950s and uh, like most farmers just trying to make the farm better than it was when I took it over. Rodney Royd's farm, Jingle Money, is about half an hour out of Braidwood. Rodney decided to give carbon farming a go seven years ago. He's one of the farmers taking part in the Emissions Reduction Fund. The aim of his Jingle Money Farm Carbon Project is to sequester carbon through a change in his land management techniques. Probably about 2013, and I was reading the the uh, Rural Bible, which is the land newspaper. Uh, I saw an article in there about Australian soil management, uh, run by Dr. Greg Bender, who was promoting using uh, increasing the carbon content of your soil to improve the water infiltration and water holding capacity of your soil. And he was wanting to get farmers interested in uh, participating in some work to to prove his theories I guess and so I applied to do that and then a few years later I, the government came up with their carbon credit scheme and um, then it sort of kicked off from there. There are over a thousand projects registered with the fund in Australia and more than 100 million carbon credit units have been issued since the scheme started in 2012. To sequester carbon, and there's a lot of research being done recently, and nothing is absolutely conclusive as to how the best way of doing it is. There's farming systems, you can have set stocked or rotational grazing or cell grazing, and it doesn't seem to make a hell of a lot of difference in how much carbon you sequester. But the most important thing to do is increase the productivity of your country, uh, which means that you're growing more biomass and to do that you've got to correct your fertility of your soil, anything that's uh, holding back the production of pasture growth. So this country is very acidic and uh, naturally and uh, I've applied lime to most of the country, tried to uh, correct that uh, soil deficiency and bring it up to its optimum growing state and then applied phosphorus, sulphur, uh, which are the most major limiting nutrients to try and get optimum production of uh, pasture. Rodney's carbon project, like most, is funded in part by carbon aggregators, companies that help farmers navigate the red tape and trade the carbon credits. When I initially got into the carbon project, the, uh, there was a carbon aggregator who had the carbon contract with the government, and then a third party, which was a Dr Greg Bender, who was the soil scientists and so there was a, a third party and they did all of the work as far as doing baseline measurements of the the soils for the carbon and uh, setting up a system to increase the amount of carbon in the soil. Rodney says he probably would not have gone into carbon farming if there wasn't a third party paying for the upfront costs. The huge costs involved, and I think that's what's stopping a lot of people getting into it, is the, doing the baseline measurements and soil testing. And from what I hear, that's what's stopping most people from getting into it. Uh, I think people are 
sequestering carbon in their soil and anyway, and pro- probably I would have been doing that. Rodney's farm is changing, but he hasn't earned any carbon credits yet. When do you expect that will happen? Well, hopefully in the next year or two, <laughs> I'll get some, some benefits there. But at this stage, everything's been a, an input cost. So there's been a lot of input costs as far as liming and, and uh, we've been, been applying compost. Mm. How much money do you think you'll get? Do you think you'll end up making a profit? Uh, hard to say. The profit is in product, probably the increased productivity that you're going to gain from the, the project by increasing the water holding capacity, which all the research done so far indicates that you can increase the soil holding capacity by 30%. So I think for every 1% increase in carbon in the soil, you're increasing your water holding capacity by 150,000 litres. I think that's going to extend the production phase of my pastures so and sort of probably help mitigate dry periods of time or droughts. It's not just about capturing carbon in the soil, it's about storing more water. So soil high in carbon holds water better, making it drought resilient. It seems like a win-win when adapting a farm for a change in climate. But Rodney isn't sure he'd recommend carbon farming to his neighbours just yet, based on his experience. There's been a huge spike in the price of carbon traded and um, of course when I got back into it, uh, 2015, there was uh, quite a, a lot less carbon, so now it's a lot more economical. Some of the proposals I had put to me to increase the carbon costs were going to actually going to cost more than what I was potentially going to make from uh, the, selling the carbon credits, and, and I just said, well, that's, it's not economically viable. Why do it? Mm. <laughs> it's got to be viable, economically viable to do it, and uh, otherwise... I, I, I can't justify it. I'm, I'm running a, a business and farming's all about maths and science and uh, you've got to make a profit at the end of the day. You've got to look at the science and see if it's going to work for you and, and then weigh up the benefits. I think there absolutely is a lot of hype about it. Carbon, carbon sequestration in Australia is always going to be limited by our climate so the drier it is, the more difficult it is to, to raise carbon levels. In, in each climate, you know, practices do make a difference. For example, perennial pastures for dairying uh, store a lot more carbon and have higher organic carbon levels than, and say, a, a crop soil, for example, that, that would be cultivated. Dr Kate Burke is the founder and owner of Think Agri, an agricultural strategy business. She says that despite the claims made by proponents of carbon farming, there's still a lot of work to be done. Farmers shouldn't rush out to sign up just yet. And this isn't a silver bullet for climate change. So you can make a difference depending on what sort of farming system you use and and what sort of methodology, but ultimately rainfall and temperature, so your location and your climate and your soil type. So sandy soils, for example, simply cannot store the same amount of carbon as, say, a deep clay soil. Kate says what works for some might not work for others, and there's a danger in treating carbon farming as a one-size-fits-all. 
there's a lot of nuance to it. And if an example's used that's out of context, there's a big risk of misleading both the farming community, but also those in cities that are very interested in our environment and mitigating climate change. And it and it could give them false hope. Ultimately, to get to carbon neutral, we need to reduce emissions. Carbon sequestration is not going to absolve us from our emission sins. Measuring soil is hard and it takes time to collect samples and analyse them in a lab. And the framework that gets people paid is a meticulous process that requires you to prove an increase in carbon. It's a slow process and you might not see a profit for years. In terms of how the system runs at the moment, one of the problems is it's very difficult to get an accurate carbon baseline because the methodologies simply aren't accurate enough. You can get a number, but it has huge errors associated with it using the methodology at the moment. So it's probably being a little bit oversimplified by some of the carbon aggregators, and I really would stress that it's buyer beware in terms of farmers wanting to get involved in carbon farming per se. Kate also says that many regenerative agriculture practices, practices which lock carbon in soil, are not new and many are already common among farmers in Australia. Things like uh, ground cover, making sure you've got as much ground cover as possible and that is regarded as a a regenerative practice. So in my world, which is broadacre cropping, that tends to involve not cultivating the soil unless it's absolutely necessary and retaining crop residue and stubble on the soil. So they're the sorts of mainstream practices that are occurring. And on the grazing side of things, rotational grazing, which has been around for a long time, but it has been taken up by the regenerative agriculture movement. And what that means is shifting livestock from field to field uh, and not overgrazing the the paddocks. Probably between 80 and 90% of croppers around Australia would be retaining their, their ground cover or their stubble. And so we're quite different to the US. We're far more, I guess, advanced along the environmental pathway there's still a lot of gaps in our understanding of carbon sequestration. There was a lot of work, really good work done on this up until 2010. And the reality is the change of government and and going to a coalition government that didn't believe in climate change and was reluctant to continue funding things like um, ways of more accurately measuring soil carbon We lost 10 years in terms of our knowledge acquisition. So we really need to go back to that point again and start from from there and start to fill in the gaps. On the other side of things, the market has sensed that we really do need to do this stuff. And obviously people are looking to offset their emissions in their own businesses. And, And so the market has spoken. So the demand is there, but the supply side has had you know, 10 years of being in the wilderness and people at the Soils Cooperative Research Centre, they're all playing catch-up so that we can get better systems in place. 
so we can measure carbon well and and do a good job of, of carbon farming. Rodney says he remembers a time when the government invested more in agricultural research. Now he says he has to turn to private companies for the latest science. I guess depending on what type of farming you're doing, if you're a broadacre farmer, there's, there's a lot of great organisations like the CSIRO, the Department of Ag, that, that do a lot of research and that's where a lot of the new technologies and ideas came from originally. Now it seems to be more private company or individual orientated driving farmers' decisions. Uh, so they've sort of dropped the ball. They've cut the funding a lot in uh, the Department of Ag and that was where I, that would they go, they go to organisation when I first started farming and now it's been amalgamated into the local land service and so you've, you're losing a lot of important um, research and development, I think. The price of carbon has been increasing and the carbon credits industry is estimated to now be worth $2.5 billion. And ahead of the 2022 federal election, the government has announced an expansion of the carbon credit scheme, providing tax cuts for involved farmers worth an estimated $100 million. Kate is sceptical of leaning on farmers and relying on carbon farming for reducing emissions. She says that climate change politics might be obscuring the science. It's the human nature of being interested in in new things. Fads come and go. Ag tech was a big fad. Biotechnology was a big fad. It's human nature to look for a silver bullet. And obviously climate change is is closing in on us. We're, We're seeing the impacts of it in terms of more sporadic weather events and associated disasters. So it's becoming real and people are searching for answers and I think it's easier to search for a a soft answer like carbon sequestration rather than tackling the really hard issues of how do we stop emissions in the first place and, you know, tackling complex issues like coal mining and mining in general and those things that are really quite disruptive to to large aspects of the community, it's far easier for the government to focus on soil carbon and any disruption there only affects about 5% of their overall voters, but those 5% of voters happen to be managing 55% of the landscape. Kate points out sequestration is probably not going to absolve our emission sins. Our soil can only hold so much. It's hard to build up carbon and easy to lose. It seems obvious, but reducing carbon emissions is the only certified way to reduce carbon emissions. Although it's fair to say that we need to use all tools at our disposal to combat and to adapt to climate change. Rodney says carbon farming certainly isn't for everyone, and individuals need to decide if it's right for them and for their land, and whether it's economically viable. But he says he personally likes to take risks on new technologies. A lot of the things haven't been proven, so we, we just don't know. We're still in a learning phase. Yeah, I tend to get into things with sort of early stage of things, so you're taking a bit of a risk, I guess. You is don't it, know it, if it's proven or not. It must be exciting. <laughs> oh, it is, yeah, but it it's, keeps you interested in farming. It's like it's a challenge. Otherwise, farming might become a little bit dull if you're just doing the same thing every day. 
So you've got to try different things and um, try and improve, improve on what you're doing. Shane isn't so keen on the idea that farmers should be paid to basically fix their past mistakes. They destroyed the garb carbon in the first place. Yeah, to be honest with you, I appreciate the farming community immensely, but first people haven't been compensated in any way, shape or form or paid for their land. A lot of these farmers have never paid for their land. They're intergenerational farmers who have been actually given land, granted it, when the Australian government and the Crown had nothing to grant. They have no beneficial title to the land. So as far as farmers making money, pay them to say, take their stock off and retire and revert back to a, a carbon sink using the native grasses that dominated those, those particular areas. And while Charles Massey at Severn Park thinks paying farmers to increase the carbon in their soil is a positive step, he thinks the time for incremental change has passed. I mean, I just don't understand this complacency or, or uh, gutlessness uh, and the appeasing of what is this, the greatest issue of, our, of any time for humanity in our leaders. So uh, the solutions are coming from regenerative farmers, but also the, the city consumers, the, the peri-urban farmers and the, the farmers markets and all those schemes where people are seeking a healthier food off healthier landscapes. It's, it's that partnership that's the insurgency that's, that, that I have hope in. And uh, eventually, as ever, government always follows the leaders when there's enough pressure. And uh, you would think that with an impending global disaster, there's enough pressure around, but most politicians are only worried about self-survival, really. That's it for this episode of Voice of Real Australia. Thank you so much for listening. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen, and I'll be back in a couple of weeks. If you like the podcast, please tell your friends and give us a five-star rating on Apple Podcasts. It really does help. If you'd like to share your story, flick us an email at voice at ostcommunitymedia.com.au. That's voice at ost, A-U-S-T, communitymedia.com.au. Our Facebook page is facebook.com slash voice of real Australia. You can follow me on Twitter at Tom Melville 124. Voice of real Australia is recorded in Canberra on Nunawal country. Reporting this week by Sophia Tarik. It's produced by Lara Corrigan and me, your host, Tom Melville. Special thanks to Saffron Howden and Kim Chappell. Our editor is Emily Sweet. This is an ACM podcast. <laughs>